Devote yourselves to prayer and being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That's Colossians 4, 2-6. Uh, Paul's words here are not just wise words for the church at Colossae. They are uh, wise words for uh, the believers here at New Beginnings. It's why this text is the foundational text for our new series called Trusting God. Uh, Trusting God is uh, a series designed to equip and empower us as believers to engage in healthy, wise, grace-filled, seasoned conversations with outsiders. See, as a church, we are working on uh, evangelism and really learning how to share the story of restoration, uh, the story of, of what God is doing, the gospel, um, with our neighbors and our friends and our our local city here. And so uh, we, we know that in the process of doing that, uh, we're going to run into some really great people that have some really uh, challenging uh, com- uh, challenging notions about Christianity and about what it means to follow Christ. Um, and we want to address those topics that uh, uh, that seem to stand as, as barriers sometimes. Um, we want to talk about uh, how we love our neighbor and how we love outsiders um, despite uh, whatever views they have or whatever lifestyles that they uh, they are engaged in. Um, our job as Christians is to, as Paul says, uh, be wise, uh, to uh, have our conversations full of grace, uh, seasoned with salt, uh, and prepared with some answers, uh, not just uh, not just some good questions. So um, that's what we're attempting to do in this. So, and we said what that looks like is essentially doing three things. Drawing back the Christian ethics to this notion that we trust God for human flourishing. We trust God to tell us who we are and what we should be doing. Number two, we said it's imperative that we seek understanding, not just being understood. For two reasons. Number one, because that's good communication, but also we too have something to learn in our conversation with outsiders. And then number three, we've also said it's very important that if we're going to uh, approach conversations about, um, you know, controversial and, and, and matters that are of, of conviction for people, that we do so without just saying, hey, this is what I think, this is what you think, and let's kind of go back in this war of words. That, that's not what we're about. Um, we want to talk about sort of the worldviews that stand behind a lot of these subjects uh, and thinking uh, that is uh, that has become uh, or that is uh, a barrier for people today, either in their their faith um, or in the conversations that we have with with others. Um, and so, last week we talked about homosexuality. This week we want to talk about um, the subject of of racism. Now, uh, we want to approach the conversations in a slightly different way. And I want to I want to begin by sort of articulating. I think it'll be helpful. In our response to homosexuality, we did basically three things. We, number one, we differentiated ourselves from this notion that Christianity, uh, or as we as believers in this conversation, are just going to speak from the pseudo-Christianity junk we see in the world, right? So we began with differentiation. The second step was to make sure that everyone owns their definition of whom they are responsible to. 
Uh, for Christians, it is God. For outsiders, for people who aren't following um, Christ or God, um, their their basis of authority and their understanding of to whom they're responsible to is different, especially as it relates to the subject of sexuality. Uh, in our modern, or rather postmodern world, people see sexuality uh, as a matter of self-expression and self-identity. Therefore, um, I get to tell myself who I am and what I should be doing. And so uh, that's a fair uh, playing field when it comes to good conversation. Everyone knows where everyone's coming from. And at that point, then you can actually step through and articulate a biblical, um, sort of a biblical explanation of, a, of, of sexual ethics. And that's, that's sort of the three-phase conversation we want to have uh, as we deal with that, with that particular subject. Um, essentially, you could boil it down to we want outsiders to understand uh, Christians, uh, Christianity's uh, sexual ethics. Um, now, obviously, we, we want more than that. We want them to, to be our friends. We want them to feel ex uh, accepted and loved by us. But we also want them to clearly understand what Christianity says about homosexuality. Um, that, that's... That's the goal of our conversation. We can't control outcomes. We can only control, uh, as Paul would say, open doors and clarity. And so when it comes to the subject matter of, uh, of racism, things change a little bit. Um, primarily for, for one reason. Because when it comes to this conversation with outsiders, usually insiders and outsiders, Christians and non-Christians, both agree that racism is bad, that it's sinful, that it shouldn't be done, uh, and that it should be, uh, um, uh, you know, it should be eradicated from our society. Now, I also, when, when I say that, I also recognize that in our world today, racism is still very much a major issue, and in parts, different parts of the country, even more so. Uh, all you have to do is turn on the television and see that, uh, um, you know, white supremacy is, is still alive and well. And you might say even growing in some areas, and I just, I just think, um, I just think it's important that that we at least make this comment at the beginning. I, I'm not saying that there isn't racist views out there uh, by people who quote unquote claim to be Christian. Uh, I'm just trying to say that in this conversation, as we address it in this this particular lesson, I want to approach it, uh, approach it from the context of someone who sees Christianity and says, I don't want to have anything to do with it because Christianity has been involved uh, with racism uh, in the past, and uh, I, I just can't get on board because of Christianity's history. Um, in my own experience, that has been more the area uh, of an obstacle than actually talking to someone who's holding on to racist and Christianity at the same time, or racism and Christianity at the same time. Um, I believe this lesson will address both of those substantively as we talk about uh, what the Bible says about racial diversity. But I, I want to approach this uh, from the perspective of, of addressing people who feel like uh, racism uh, and Christianity's uh, past and DNA, especially in this country, um, is is an obstacle for us going forward in conversation or uh, outsiders taking seriously the call of Christ. So um, I want to I want to approach it from that perspective. So we're on the same side of the racism issue in that Christians and outsiders 
by and large, are against the notion uh, and the practice and the sin of racism. So I hope that's clear. Um, let's go forward. So I, I believe our approach has to change a little bit. What we're going to do when it comes to approaching racism is uh, instead of differentiating ourselves from the past, we're going to own our past. I have a good friend named Josh that has this saying that says, you don't have to be, or the past doesn't have to be a life sentence. You can learn your lesson uh, and uh, from your past. And I just think that's, that's such a wise saying, right? Um, but I think it also implies that the way the past isn't a life sentence, it's because you have learned the lesson. And so uh, we want to approach Christianity's practice of uh, and involvement in racism in the past uh, with uh, a healthy understanding that we need to learn our lesson, that we need to own that stuff that was a part of our past, and be able to clearly articulate the uh, the lesson that we've learned. Um, so that's the first place we're going, uh, is to, to see our past, to see what it is that we need to own. The second thing is we're going to look at what we've learned. And the third thing is uh, we're going to end on articulating uh, a view of, um, uh, sort of a biblical view of uh, racial diversity. Uh, so when it comes to homosexual conversations, uh, we want to talk about, uh, we want to address outsiders and help them to understand uh, a sort of a Christian sexual ethic. When it comes to racism, we want outsiders to know that Christians, right, understand uh, uh, biblical race relations. And uh, and so we're just going to step through that. Number one, uh, we want to talk about our past and be real about what, what took place there. Um, and I think this is, uh, this is important. And when it comes to uh, the Restoration Movement and the Churches of Christ, of which I'm a part, New Beginnings uh, has its heritage in, um, we have to look back and, and, and say that this is, at one level, a difficult conversation. And not just because it's emotionally challenging, but because we don't have a headquarters that has an official sort of presentation of our worldview. Um, so there's no like official document that says this is what we say about humanity and and racism and, and all these things. What we have to do in our particular movement is go back and look and sort of survey leaders and thought development um, and say this is probably the, the way most of us thought. Um, now, I will say this at the very beginning. When it comes to the problem of racism um, and specifically slavery, uh, as we, as we move back from, uh, as far as that, um, we were, we were kind of all over the spectrum. Uh, we did have people who were in the abolitionist camp, uh, I, incidentally, uh, up here in the north, uh, northeast in Ohio, um, there were, there were several leaders in the restoration movement that were abolitionists. And I think it's important that we note that that was also in the north. <laughs> um, there's some significance to that. And then there we had people in the in the in the south. Um, there was a gentleman that comes to mind, uh, a man by the name of Shannon, uh, who was a restoration leader, um, and he actually used scripture to support and endorse slavery uh, as it was in in America. Uh, and then there's people in the middle, um, if you can call it a middle, um, the likes of which Thomas Campbell, uh, a major restoration. Uh, leader, founder, 
uh, would be would be found. Now it's fascinating. People to the north who were abolitionists viewed uh, Campbell as um, sort of too much pro-slavery. People uh, on the other side and the slavery uh, slavery side of things thought Campbell was too moderate, um, and because uh, he actually pushed for abol the abolition of slavery. Um, but Campbell, when he wrote about and spoke about this publicly, most of the time he spoke about it as uh, as a threat to the American uh, American society, and specifically to, to white people in America. So, uh, yes, he did say, hey, we got to get rid of uh, slavery, but he did so because he basically thought it was bad for America. Not because... Uh, not because it was essentially a sin and a problem uh, for any God-fearing believer. There's a difference, right, uh, in that. So, uh, but I w would also say that um, since the churches of Christ um, within the Restoration Movement are largely a Southern movement, um, we have largely um, been on the wrong side of race relations. We have largely been on the wrong side uh, and have and, uh, adopted sinful racist attitudes uh, in the past. And you can see this, and I, I just want to kind of point to a couple of things. The first one of, uh, is essentially the, uh, the proliferation of all black churches in the South, uh, a comparison before and after the, the Civil War. Um, in some of my reading I did uh, prior to this, it was noted that prior to the Civil War, um, while the, uh, there was only three all black churches in the South that could be documented. That doesn't mean there wasn't more. There just was, uh, they could only document three in this particular article. Um, there was uh, the Salinas, Tennessee, Thyatira, Mississippi, and a place called Ricks, Alabama. Now, that's significant because that kind of, uh, just, just keep that, that status in mind. After the war, the Christian Standard, which was a periodical uh, in the Churches of Christ at the time, estimated that there were over 600 uh, congregations after the, the Civil War by 1895, right? So um, what you can fairly argue is that things got more segregated. Uh, this idea of uh, racism, uh, even though slavery was abolished, racism was provoked. Um, and this notion of, of separating these cultures was, was pushed to the forefront. Uh, segregation became a reality. In the uh, Reconstruction period, uh, there were all sorts of rules and uh, evil racist practices uh, um, and thinking that was adopted by so many. Uh, there were even legal uh, legal arguments like uh, the separate but equal, which passes. Uh, there are Jim, Jim Crow laws that develop that are supposed to regulate um, what is um, the moral uh, norm for race relations in a, in a given community. Um, and so I, I think it's important um, that we, we don't really, we, we, we can't really say Christianity uh, stopped the slavery issue. Um, it didn't. Um, it wasn't good for America. That was the premise. Um, second, we also have to see that even though slavery uh, was abolished, racism was was not. It was actually emboldened in the mind view, uh, mindset, in, in the lives of people. Uh, and there's just so many reasons why that we can't go into. But uh, this segregated racist 
sort of worldview was in the minds of people for a long time. Um, I want to quote a, another guy. Uh, he's a man by the name of R.N. Hogan. And he's writing uh, in about uh, 1960s, early 1960s. Uh, R.N. Hogan is a, is a black preacher and a very outspoken and articulate man. Uh, myself growing up in California uh, and my dad being a minister in the Churches of Christ had spoken often and uh, in very uh, good ways about R.N. Hogan. And um, so when I ran across this, this article, I thought it was very insightful and really worth considering. Um, he, again, he's writing in the 60s, um, many, many years later, right? Uh, and he writes, One of our ministers graduated from TCU, a Christian college school, but couldn't go to Abilene Christian College. However, Brother Fer, uh, Figueroa of Mexico graduated there. Uh, Mr. Ho Mr. Hogan says Negroes are admitted to the state school at Fayetteville, Arkansas, but they cannot enter Harding College, a Christian school. They are admitted to state-supported schools in Tennessee, but he cannot attend David Lipscomb College in Nashville, Tennessee, nor Freed Hardman College in Henderson, Tennessee. If these schools were, uh, would, uh, will disassociate the name of Christian from them, their practice would not reflect so badly on the cause of Christ. Now, I don't know how that, that sets with you, if that triggers you or not. Uh, my prayer is that it does trigger you for the, for the right, re right reason, not in a sense of defensiveness for our higher education institutions of higher education, but rather uh, triggers you uh, in that in the so many years after the Civil War, all the way up into the early 60s, not only were churches continuing to be segregated, but even our places of higher education reflected that. Now, to be fair, these, uh, these places of higher education were slow to change and slower to change than the majority of Christians within the community and specifically uh, on staff at a lot of these uh, institutions because um, I remember one of the articles I read that uh, at Harding University, many of the staff and administration were actually uh, for integration and knew that racism and segregation was a violation of God's will and it was sinful. Um, but the universities were slower to change because the people who paid for those universities, the people who funded those universities, still uh, adopted uh, racist worldviews. Uh, and so the sort of the purse strings won out over, uh, over righteous, godly action, uh, which is uh, a sad testimony in of itself. So um, needless to say, slavery... Uh, is abolished, but racism was not. It was emboldened. And that emboldened racism uh, had a lasting effect up into the 60s. And I would say even in the 70s. I remember talking to my dad about this sermon, and uh, he mentioned, uh, see, my dad became a minister uh, in the Parish Church of Christ in Southern California. And at the time, it was a largely an African-American church. And, um, and so one day, there was a, a visiting evangelist from the South. I don't remember what state he was from. But he was raising money to uh, to build a baptistry, and the men asked him, like, "Okay, well, we would like to support you, but why don't you just use another Church of Christ in town uh, and use their baptistry in the meantime?" And his response just floored my dad and continues to floor me even as I say it now. Um, but he said basically, "Well, uh, we can't do that because the white Church of Christ in town will not allow us to baptize people of color there." 
and uh, and that was uh, that was in the 70s, right? So, racism and segregation in our churches, and this mindset uh, was around for a long time, and is still around in many areas uh, in the South, uh, and systemic racism even alive, uh, just nationally. Um, so, you say, well, Matt, how could people think this, right? Well, I'm I'm glad you asked because I I think I, I can. I f- sort of illustrate what this looks like. Um, I want to introduce you to a guy by the name of Foley Wallace Jr. Uh, I've recently seen some documentation uh, about this individual who um, would bill himself or have others around him bill himself as this gener- his generation's uh, Alexander Campbell. All right, so uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Ferguson, uh, um, or this gentleman, rather, um, Foley Wallace, excuse me, Foley Wallace Jr. Uh, was uh, was a very dominant voice in the 1940s. He was at one time, uh, for about four years, I believe, uh, an editor for the Gospel Advocate. Um, and ends up his career, if I remember correctly, with the Firm Foundation, another periodical of the time. And in the midst of all that, uh, wrote for his own articles and spent many years uh, sort of angering people. Uh, and after I read this this to you, uh, you'll probably see why. Mr. Foy Wallace Jr. would say, Reliable brethren in the valley have reported the, the definite inclinations of the Negro man and his wife in charge of the orphan home for colored children at Coombs toward a social equality. They are supposed to be members of the church, and some of the white brethren are apparently encouraged them. It is said that these two Negroes have privately stated that they have uh, that they favor social equality and are working for it. The younger editor of the Christian Soldier in the Valley admits that he roomed with uh, the preacher R.N. Hogan and even slept in the same bed with him for two nights. He goes on to say, in light of all of this, aside from being an infringement on the Jim Crow laws, it's a violation of Christianity itself and of all common decency. Such conduct forfeits the respect of right-thinking people and would be calculated to stir up demonstrations in most any community if it should become generally known. Now, uh, this is just a snidbit of an article he, he wrote in the Banner in 1941. And it's not even the most triggering. triggering. But I think this does a good job of showing us what I believe is the heart of the problem. Uh, If you step back 30,000 foot view, uh, Mr. Foy Wallace parallels Jim Crow laws, racist laws, and in the same sentence parallels them in his argument with Christianity itself. Let that sit in a second. He's not arguing Jim Crow laws versus Christianity itself. He's saying their conduct because of Jim Crow laws in my left hand and Christianity itself in my right is a violation of common decency. All right? So if you want to know what the, defi- uh, the, the dysfunction is, right? the dysfunction is pretty clear. Um, uh, many people for a long time believed in the churches of Christ, believed it was possible to hold on to the gospel and racism at the same time. Right, this is why it's imperative when people say, "Listen, I can't get on board with Christianity or get on board with you 
Christian uh, because Christianity has had a racist past. You can't simply say, sorry, wasn't us, we didn't do it. If you're, if you're communicating, if you're a part of the Restoration Movement, if you're a part of majority of the Protestantism and uh, uh, the Christian religions that started during the um, Second Great Awakening, then, then you've, you have a problem with racism, most likely. Uh, it's, it's better that we say, yeah, uh, we did. And our, the audacity of our claim was that we could hold on to the gospel and racism at the same time. Uh, but if, if that past isn't going to be a life sentence, we have to learn from it. And so what do we learn from it? Well, uh, I know there are a lot of, of, of lessons we can learn. And my diagnosis is uh, I only have three things to talk about. I'm sure... I'm sure there's a lot more to say. I'm sure uh, good friends of mine, uh, uh, black ministers in the Churches of Christ, uh, people I dearly respect like uh, Brother Fate Haygood and uh, from uh, from Carson and others who uh, whose lived experience is uh, closer to this pro uh, this issue, have a lot more to say. But I, I just want to tell you three things that I see. Number one. Uh, Christians in the early parts of our country, uh, during the founding of our country, blindly adopted racist worldviews of their time, which means they're sort of a product of their time. Now, uh, when I say that phrase, I don't, in any sense, want to normalize their dysfunction. Uh, they should not have been a product of their times. Uh, let me repeat that. It was sinful for them to be a product of their times. They should have known better and should have done something about it. But having said that, uh, when you look at the times in which the the Churches of Christ got their start during the Second Great Awakening, people's mindsets about race were highly racist. Uh, even, I mean, I know this is a bit further, uh, 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 a bit earlier, but uh, Thomas Jefferson, I mean, you read some of his writings about how he believed that uh, that white people, uh, especially from European descent, were superior to uh, specifically to the African American and to the uh, to to the to the black race. I just this was a normal worldview. There was a there was a hierarchy of races, and white European males were at the top. And uh, in addition to things such as like uh, scientific uh, racism, which is sort of a pseudoscience that attempted to look at the physiologies of of different uh, different races and try to determine what is superior and who is superior. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of, of broken worldviews in this time period. And uh, instead of the church allowing God, right, allowing the transcendent, allowing God to tell them who they are and what they should be doing, fell victim to the group, to the worldview, to the quote-unquote traditional values of the time. And let me just say, the traditional values of the time were racist. Uh, next week we're, we're going to talk about the fact that they were repressive. But uh, they were wrong. And they were sinful. And they blindly adopted this sinful attitude. Um, the second thing, the second diagnosis of our heart problem uh, was, was too, was this, what I like to call, next step idolatry. Um, I, I believe idolatry is the sin behind all sins. 
I believe that uh, what we see in the garden in Genesis, uh, our sin, uh, original sin, wasn't curiosity. It wasn't simply, oh, that looked like great fruit. Let me try this forbidden fruit. The sin was, and the heart of the sin was, this will make me like God. Now, I want you to think of that for a second. If our greatest challenge, our sin behind all sins, is the audacity that we would think we could be God, that we, that the I, that the me, that I could be greater, exalted, more significant, more capable of, of living my life and doing things right than God does. How easy a transition to think if I'm superior to God, then I'm superior to you. This is why John, in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, for instance, would tie together how closely our view of God and our response to others is related. He says, listen, if you can't get on board with your brother, really, you're going to have a hard time getting on board with God himself. And the reason behind all of that, I believe, is, uh, is we have a heart of idolatry. Um, we think we're ourselves superior to God. Uh, we think we can uh, we replace the righteousness that God would give us with a righteousness of our own. Why not think that we can uh, replace uh, any other culture with the superiority of our own? So, uh, I, I believe this is a, a fair diagnosis, and it also moves into whatever culture, whatever race may be doing the, uh, practicing the racism at the time. Idolatry is, uh, is a huge heart of the problem. So we have a problem with our mind. We adopt worldviews that were racist. Number two, we have a, uh, a problem with our heart. And, and number three, and this is very important for those of us who've grown up in the churches of Christ, we have a problem with our hermeneutic. A head problem, a heart problem, and a problem with our hermeneutic. Um, patternism. Uh, patternism is, in my definition, uh, an application model uh, that people within the churches of Christ were taught to use to authorize a Christian worldview. And they would use things such as commands, examples, and necessary inferences. Now, let me say at the on, or outset of this, um, those three things are essential to any sort of application model, <laughs> right? So I'm not saying overtly that command, examples, and inferences are, are overtly uh, wrong in and of themselves. Uh, that is that is thinking, uh, that is applying. Uh, you, you really would struggle to do anything with any sort of literature without those three things. Um, what I am saying is that patternism was the tendency to divorce the application model, commands, examples, and necessary inference from the overall heart of God, the flow of Scripture, um, and good sound theology. Uh, in essence, we would push things back to this question of why do we do anything, for instance, in church? We would say, well, because we see the New Testament church practicing such. Uh, again, uh, with some qualifications, not uh, not necessarily a bad way to think, right? Why do we uh, why do we as a church have elders and deacons and pastors and teachers? Well, because the early church had elders and deacons and pastors and teachers. Why 
Uh, why do we meet on the first day of the week uh, on a Sunday? Well, because the early church seemed to have met on the first day of the week, among other days, but on the first day of the week. Why do we uh, have communion on the first day of the week? Uh, well, it seems like they did that as well. Um, and on, on and on and on and on we go. Uh, but if, if, if you're tracking here, then you can already see where this is going. Because not only does the New Testament church have Sunday morning and communion and church, right? They also have servants and masters. The Bible has slavery in it. Um, the New Testament has servants and masters along with guidelines and commands and inferences. So, uh, and, and don't think that wasn't noticed by people who were pro-slavery, pro-racist. Uh, the gentleman, the the gentleman referred to earlier, uh, Mr. Shannon, uh, who who supported slavery in America, used this pattern hermeneutic to argue for that. It was there, so it can be here. Uh, people uh, in our movement throughout uh, the past, and even to this day, on occasion, you hear people say, "Hey, listen, slavery." Uh, uh, they usually qualify it this way. Oh, the sort of New Testament slavery and slavery in America were, were sort of quantifiably different. I, I agree there's differences, but there were still races considering uh, racism involved, and there was still abuse involved. And so uh, let's just not even, let's not play the game. It, it was an easier form. It was wrong then, too. Um but they will also say, hey, I see it in the New Testament. Uh, God allowed Israel to be slaves in Egypt, so on and so forth. Next thing you know, you know, uh, therefore it's okay to do it now. Uh, or it's uh, an acceptable practice. What, what they don't hear themselves doing, unfortunately, is saying that one can hold on to the gospel and racism at the same time. And, uh, and that's, that's how it happened for us. Uh, we have a racist past. First off, second off, the, the problem connected to our racist past is we adopted uh, and were a product of our racist worldview in the times that, uh, we're, that we were a part of. Uh, it, it appealed to our idolatrous heart that not only wants to place ourselves in a place of superiority with God, but also wants to place ourselves in a place of superiority with the other. And it was enhanced by patternism by exalting commands, examples, and inferences apart from context, apart from the narrative and overall teleos, or goal of Scripture, and apart from the very heart of God. A, a man by the name of uh, uh, John Mark Hicks, Dr. John Mark Hicks from uh, Lipscomb University, writes, To the degree our history has neglected a theological hermeneutic, to that same degree racism is available to get hold of our hearts because we have been more deeply formed by the racist social pressures and practices rather than by the heart of God. Like the elder brother, who precisely obeyed all his father's rules, but did not know his father's heart, some are so focused on searching for, arguing about, and precisely obeying a blueprint that they don't know the Father's heart. Two things in this. So powerful. A, he says, listen, uh, our, our ability, willingness to be racist uh, sort of parallels our dysfunction with our hermeneutic. 
We neglected a theological hermeneutic is another way of saying if we exalted patternism, the, the, uh, the application model, apart from the context, apart from the heart of God. Um, and then the second thing he, he points out is um, not only are we really, uh, we're really, really tempted to devise laws uh, to follow, to precisely follow, uh, we were uh, unaware uh, many times of God's heart concerning the matter. And so um, uh, those are th that's kind of how I describe what we've learned from it. Yes, we've had a racist past, and yes, we're owning it. Uh, and this is the thing we learned. We, we learned that we cannot simply adopt worldviews around us. We can't allow our idolatrous heart to lead us. And we can't allow patternism to be divorced or to divorce itself from uh, good sound theology, the heart of God, and the intended goal of, of God in the story that he's telling. And so where do we go from here? Well, I would tell you that um, the way we go from here uh, is is by looking then back to Scripture, back to the transcendent, right? Move away again from this uh, traditional values sort of past to an actual response of God on the matter of of racism and um, what God has to say about racial diversity. Uh, I want to share with you uh, one, two, three. Let's see. There's six sort of bullet points that. Uh, that Mr. Hicks points out that would sort of be a rough draft, uh, sort of the skeleton of a biblical view of, uh, of race relations. Um, and this is how he uh, are, would, would touch on it. And I would suggest to you as a great way to think about it. Number one, we would start with creation, act one of the story. Uh, there's two things in Act 1 of the story that are so significant. Number one, we are the image of God, right? Uh, the Imago Dei. We are... God's image bearers, and, and because of that, there is dignity. Even though there's fallenness, there is still dignity. Um, there is dignity in humanity. We, we don't get to treat people less than the image of God. The second thing is, is there's diversity. Um, this, this command, not only to be uh, this, this beyond being created in the image of God, they were also commanded to go to fill the earth. Within that, within that request is the uh, expectation, the implicit description of diversity, cultures, uh, form over time. And so uh, there's the dignity and diversity in the beginning. So God, God expected diversity to bear His image. Red and yellow, black and white, right? All of God's children. Dignity and diversity. Um, second, when you look at the story of Israel, and this is, is an important point to make, a lot of white supremacists and people who just don't understand the heart of God will look at Israel and God's choice of Israel as uh, a norm for the way that God is, uh, so, uh, a norm for themselves so that they can be choosing one race, Right? Um, and let, if you actually read the story and read the Bible, you, you recognize that Israel, Israel's choice by God uh, did not damage the rest of the races. It did not, um, it was for their good. Even the Abrahamic promise said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of Abraham and his descendants. Right? Um, Israel is a way that God blessed all races, all nations. They were a light on the hill. Um, 
they were be a priesthood. Uh, they were ultimately to demonstrate what it looks like to live out under God's rule and reign in the world, which is God wanting people uh, in his story. Uh, then, of course, there's the mystery of Christ, which what we read about already in Paul. Paul wants this courage to, to proclaim the mystery of Christ, that in Christ there is a brand new us. Uh, Colossians 3 references this as Christ in all and through all. I don't just see you in terms of race. I don't. I am not colorblind, as other people would would sort of argue. I am not culturally looking at you, but I am, in addition to those things, seeing Christ in you. And I think Galatians three twenty eight uh, is also uh, representative of this. Uh, instead of seeing things that are very important but not ultimate as matters of identity, we now see each other in Christ, right? In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, because we are all one in Christ. Obviously, Paul's not arguing, therefore those categories don't matter. What Paul is arguing is your in-Christness is first and most important. And actually, uh, it makes you a better fill in those categories. <laughs> uh, a better person all, all the way around. Your in-Christness is most significant. Um, and then, of course, the church. When we look at the church in Act 5 of the great story, um, it's a new community made up of all nations. The gospel creates, as Paul would argue in Ephesians, a new household. We're all a part of the family. And then, of course, in, uh, in the teleos, in the end game, right? Um, when we think about new creation, uh, Revelation 7 says there's a multitude from every nation around the throne of God. Right. So think about that. Right. At the beginning of the story, uh, there is diversity that bears the image of God. And at the end of the story, when everything is put right, there is diversity who bears the image of God, all working and worshiping together. And everywhere in between. I also didn't mention uh, this other category, very important one. I apologize. Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus himself has... Uh, people from other races and cultures in his lineage. His genealogy has outsiders left and right. Uh, his ministry was to people of the household of faith or of the household of Israel, but also to the, the Syrophoenician woman and the centurion son and uh, uh, the woman at the well. So his ministry was uh, multi-ethnic, and it, it blessed a multi-ethnic crowd. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for all. So this is the narrative, this is the arch, this is the direction and the teleos of Scripture. And how dare we look into the narrative unfolding, decontextualize, rip apart from the, the narrative bits and pieces that we think endorse our worldview. We have to do things differently. John Mark Hicks says, commands, examples, and necessary inferences do not function ab uh, abstractly or uh, autonomously, but are understood uh, in the light of the larger story and where they are placed in that story. They are relative to the story itself, rather than autonomous or, or autonomous rather, or independent propositions abstracted from the story in search of the place in the presumed implicit blueprint 
The story, which is the gospel, is the primary and normative lens. What he's saying is, listen, the 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 narrative of which we are a part in, in terms of our place in history, in the church, in America, that does not become the normative uh, context to read Scripture. We don't read the Scripture with, uh, or we shouldn't rather, read Scripture with racist worldviews, with the context of Jim Crow and the context of racism and the superiority and a hierarchy of races. That's not the narrative you take to Scripture. You Scripture has a narrative it asks you to take. And then when it comes to race relation, it was the one we just we said that it that diversity bears the image of God and is where God is going in in the end. Uh, this is so true, so important, and also key and vital to notions of repression that are true among the church as well, um, which we'll talk about uh, next week. And I hope uh, hope you can tune in for that. Um, so the dysfunction uh, again, let me say is. Uh, we believed it was possible to hold on to the to gospel and racism at the same time, and the answer is to um, the answer is to avoid racist worldviews, to guard our hearts against our desire for idolatry and superiority, and number three, to submit the pattern to the narrative of Scripture, the heart of the Father and the teleos, where God is going, and the story of restoration. And I guess I just want to end with, uh, with a story that I think represents what I just said. How the narrative of Scripture, where God is going, the teleos, is supposed to have affected uh, people's thinking in regards to racism and slavery. There's a story in Scripture, uh, in Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul is sending a man by the name of Onesimus back to Philemon. Onesimus ran away. He is a slave in the household of Philemon. He runs away. Uh, in the culture of the time, he was essentially stealing himself. And he finds Paul. is converted. Paul's getting out of prison. He wants a place to stay with Philemon. He's going to send Onesimus back to him. To prepare a place, but also uh, does so, sends Onesimus back with a letter, by the way, that Paul's writing, uh, to, and he does so expecting the teleos, the gospel, to change everything when it comes to this man's relationship with his master, or his former master. Philemon 12, uh, chapter 1, 12 and 16, there's only one chapter. Uh, perhaps the reason Onesimus was separated from you a little while was that you might have him back forever. Now listen to this. No longer as a slave. But better than a slave. As a dear brother. He is, a very, he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you. Both as a fellow man, a fellow man, and as a brother in the Lord. That, my friends, is what the gospel should have done among the churches of Christ, largely in the South, when she, uh, when she took off during um, 
the second great awakening and um, uh, unfortunately uh, this didn't happen uh, we we couldn't do what Paul asked even though this is a New Testament epistle asking asking demanding expecting people who are holding on to racism and the gospel to let go of the racism and to accept Onesimus not as a slave but as a brother see uh, there is no question that the New Testament begins with the gospel going into a culture and a society that held on to racism but it does expect and show and demand that they lose racism for the gospel and that they no longer see each other as Scythian or slave or barbarian or male or female or Jew or Greek insider, outsider that they begin to see and appreciate and accept and love each other first and foremost because of the mystery of Christ and the power of the gospel. When we are having conversations with people, when we are on the same side of this conversation with outsiders, we don't try to sort of differentiate ourselves from the problem. We have to realize we have been the problem. But it doesn't have to be a life sentence if we learn our lesson. And if we learn our lesson, that lesson becomes part of the dialogue. That lesson becomes the way that our conversation is full of grace. In this case, expecting grace to cover ourselves. This is the way the conversation is full of salt because the truth is we've struggled with this. And this is the way the conversation is full of answers because we've seen our ways and we want to change. And not only do we want to see the past and change in the past, we want to make sure and lean into the future uh, and, and address, uh, which is subject for another time, but even the systemic racism that exists in our communities today. Well, uh, that's it for now, folks. Next week, we're going to take a look at repression uh, and how to have a conversation about that. Uh, my prayer is that these lessons have triggered you. Uh, and that your safe space <laughs> uh, is the, the grace of God. And that you're able to, uh, able to see the heart of God in this. Uh, don't be defensive. Um, no one is righteous, not even us. <laughs> uh, we are all saved by grace. And the quicker we own our stuff and learn from it, the better our conversations, the more likely we're going to be able to make uh, build bridges rather than barriers. All right. God bless.